Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Not Peace, But Division, The Embarrassing Words of the Authentic Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 18th, 2013. When the American writer Will Durant tried to identify the historically authentic Jesus, he used what he called a criterion of embarrassment. Simply put, it's hard to see why writers would fabricate embarrassing material that hurts their cause. We hide embarrassing stories. We don't publish them for posterity. Durant gave examples like Peter's denial in the flight of the disciples when Jesus was arrested. I would include this week's gospel from Luke chapter 12 as another embarrassing example of the authentic Jesus. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are harsh words, but hardly an exception. Upon his birth, Simeon prophesied that Jesus would be a sign of contradiction, and that's what we see throughout his life. He was rejected by his hometown of Nazareth, his family tried to apprehend him as insane. His brothers didn't believe in him. The people of Capernaum ran him out of town. A Samaritan village wouldn't even let him enter their town. His detractors said he was demon-possessed and raving mad. The religious elite opposed him fiercely. Many of his disciples quit following him. And finally, after three years, Rome executed him because people said that he told them not to pay their taxes. So much for our safe and soft version of Jesus. This harsh opposition to a divisive Jesus reverberates throughout the New Testament. The epistle of Peter describes Jesus as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Paul called Jesus a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In John's Gospel, Jesus thus prays for his followers. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. The epistle of Hebrews chapter 11 for this week confirms that prayer of Jesus. 
And the cry of the psalmist from Psalm chapter 80 summarizes the message of Hebrews. The psalmist writes, You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. The recipients of Hebrews were second-generation believers. The text's elegant Greek, its quotations from the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, and its distinctly Jewish themes all suggest that the readers were Hellenistic Jewish believers. Its date is early enough that the author refers to the priesthood and temple sacrificial practices in the present tense. And so it's hard to imagine a date later than 70 AD, since it never mentions the catastrophic destruction of the Jerusalem temple. It's also early enough that the recipients believed in the imminent return of Jesus, a belief that turned out to be wrong and therefore gradually waned as the decades receded. But its date is late enough for the readers to have experienced severe trials and tribulations, a situation that was not the case until several decades after Jesus. The author describes how the believers experienced the confiscation of their property, imprisonment, public insults, persecutions, the discontinuation of their meetings, and a great contest in the face of suffering. When a fire broke out in Rome on June 18, AD 64, and destroyed about half the city, the psychopathic emperor Nero deflected criticism by blaming the Christians. Connecting these dots leads me to conjecture that Hebrews was written during a narrow window of time, after the fire in Rome in 64 AD, and before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The context was one in which believers faced significant opposition for following the divisive Jesus. Imprisonment and government confiscation of property corroded community morale. Some people stopped meeting together. These beleaguered believers were tempted to shrink back, to deny the faith, and to throw away their confidence. The author thus encouraged them to draw near and to persevere in full assurance of faith and unswerving hope. In particular, he exhorted them to imitate the faith of the saints who had gone before them. A Christian who had lost house and home, endured public ridicule, or saw a loved one mauled to death in the Circus Maximus, might ask many hard questions about God's promises. Does God keep his promises? Exactly what does he promise? And what does it mean to believe God's promises? God's promises loom large in Hebrews 10 and 11. In fact, the word promise and its derivatives occur at least 10 times in those two chapters. I've typically read Hebrews chapter 11 as a hall of fame of spiritual superstars. Yes, it honors saints who conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the fury of flames. 
But the author makes two remarkably candid admissions. When I read more carefully, I discover a different sort of scene. Alongside those who gained what was promised, chapter 1133, there were many saints who, quote, did not receive what was promised, chapter 1113 and 1139. Rather, here's how Hebrews describes the latter saints who did not receive what was promised. It reads, others were tortured, some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. <clears throat> they were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. This isn't rhetorical exaggeration. It could easily describe the life of a Christian under emperors like Nero or Diocletian, or modern despots like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or Saddam Hussein. These exemplars of faith remain sure of what they hoped for, but did not see. Certain of what God has promised, but they did not experience. This is what the ancients were commended for. Abraham is the most important example of how believing isn't seeing. Abraham journeyed from a present clarity to a future of profound ignorance. He journeyed from what he had to what he did not have, from the known to the unknown, from everything that was familiar <clears throat> to all things strange. Thus Hebrews commends his radical obedience to God, which defied both the inner propensities of human nature and the outer pressures of cultural conformity. We read, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. Hebrews 11.13 says, Abraham died without having received the promise. In the words of Edwin Moore's poem, Abraham, and I quote, The promise had not come, and he left his bones far from his father's house in alien Canaan. And so, with the stuff of his human life unfinished, and the promises of God unfulfilled, Abraham became, as Paul puts it in Romans 4.16, the father of us all. For book this week, I review an important new title. The author is Michael Moss. The title of the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. New York 
Random House, 2013, 446 pages. We all eat too much salt, sugar, and fat. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and hypertension are now epidemics. The United States is the most obese country in the world. Michael Moss, winner of a Pulitzer Prize for his investigative journalism, explains how we got to this point, and it's not a pretty picture. True, consumers bear their own responsibilities, but he lays the blame squarely upon the food giants like Cargill, Philip Morris, Kraft, General Foods, and Coca-Cola for poisoning us. When you enter a grocery store, not the slightest detail whatsoever has been left to chance. The creators of Crave utilize the most sophisticated ways and means available to them, from brain research to ruthless and deceptive marketing tactics. It's all perfectly engineered to compel overconsumption. They've been wildly successful. Kellogg spends a billion dollars a year on advertising. That healthy yogurt you eat could have two times the amount of sugar as sweetened cereal. Some cereals are really a form of candy with 50% or more sugar. The sweetness of sugar can be amplified to 200 times its normal state. With food companies using about 5 billion pounds of salt a year, it's no wonder many of us eat 10 to 20 times the amount of salt that we need. And only about 6% of that comes from your shaker. About 75% of the salt you eat comes from processed foods. And as for fat, we get most of that from red meat and cheese. Moss's narrative is also a cultural history. Tang, $500 million a year in sales. Oreos, $490 billion sold. Kool-Aid, $800 million a year in sales. The fictional Betty Crocker, Capri Sun, Cheese Whiz, Lunchables. A few senior executives go on record with genuine candor and deep regrets about how they sacrificed <coughs> public interests for corporate profits. <coughs> and Moss cuts them a break of sorts. <coughs> they, too, are caught in a double bind. <coughs> On the one hand, they are addicted to salt, sugar, and fat in order to survive. <coughs> and secondly, they face merciless competition that translates into Wall Street's pressures for profits. <clears throat> Moss interviewed hundreds of people across three plus years. Despite a few hopeful signs from the food industry, don't expect any help from them. They deny their culpability. 
don't expect any help from the government, which aids and abets them. But we're not helpless. We have choices. Here's one simple guideline I try to follow. Avoid as many processed foods as possible. In the lingo of Michael Pollan, eat food and not food-like substances. Of course, that's hard with kids, jobs, and busy lives. As I wrote this review, Dunkin' Donuts announced a new so-called breakfast sandwich made of a fried egg and bacon between two glazed donuts. We must say no. Michael Moss, the title of the book, Salt, Sugar, Fat. For movies this week, we go to Canada in a film called The Stories We Tell, 2013. Every family has a story, but who gets to tell that story? And how reliable is the story when there are multiple actors with different perspectives, memories, and motives? At the simplest level, the actress, writer, director, Sarah Polly, tells the story of her own family, particularly as it revolved around her mother who died when she was 11. She gathers her four siblings, father, and friends, interrogates them with questions, and lets the camera roll. Old family movies provide images for the narrative. But percolating beneath the sanitized version of the narrative are a long-running joke, unanswered questions, contradictions, and untold secrets. Who knows the truth and can tell it? Who gets to control the plot? This movie presents a paradox. It's not at all clear why we should care about Polly's family story. But nonetheless, in telling her story, we realize how much myth and memory intertwine in all of our family narratives. The title of the movie, The Stories We Tell. And finally, for poetry and prayer this week, we posted another in our series of Celtic poems and prayers. This one is called House Protecting. God bless the world and all that is therein. God bless my spouse and my children. God bless the eye that is in my head. And bless, O oh God, the handling of my hand. What time I rise in the morning early, what time I lie down late in bed, Bless my rising in the morning early, and my lying down late in bed. God, protect the house and the household. Consecrate the children of the motherhood. Encompass the flocks and the young. Be thou after them and tending them. What time flocks ascend the hill, and what time I lie down to sleep. What time a flocks ascend hill, 
and what time I lie down in peace to sleep. House Protecting One of the Gaelic poems and prayers from the Carmina Gedelica, collected by Esther DeWall in the Celtic Vision. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 18th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.